Hello and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon and I'm here with my colleague Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team and we're on the podcast to try and help break down many of the issues that are confronting employers from a compliance perspective. Right now, we just cannot stop talking about COVID-19. Right. It's so much in front of employers. It's coming so fast. We're trying to cover it in lots of different formats through our Washington Update email blast, through FAQs on our website, nfp.com, latest insights. We're covering it in our biweekly newsletter, Compliance Corner, and then we have our weekly webinar series every Tuesday at noon. Uh, benefits compliance issues, and Wednesday at noon with our HR services webinar. But we still want to hit some of these FAQs on our podcast, talk about it a little more informally. Um, But if you want the in-depth analysis, go to our website, listen to the webinars. Uh, Suzanne, the first question we want to address with the new DOL regulations out now is with respect to shelter-in-place orders or directives do those qualify as a quarantine or a... Uh... An isolation. Right. So, yeah, there was some question on this. So, it did, without going into depth about the six qualifying reasons for the emergency paid sick leave, one of the reasons did pertain to a, a situation in which an employee is unable to work because of a state or local quarantine or isolation order, mm-hmm. and there was no definition. So, the DOL rules do state that a shelter-in-place order or stay-at-home order uh, does qualify someone for uh, one of these paid, bi- well, it's actually only under the Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act, if the employee is unable to telework. So the example that they give, which I think is helpful, is um, a coffee shop. So with the, uh, with the shelter in place, the coffee shop is closed, the cashier is sent home, there is no work for the cashier to do while at home. So in that situation, the cashier would not qualify. Instead, they would be directed to go seek unemployment insurance through their state unemployment insurance office. Mm -hmm. So the key here, if they can work um, uh, through telework, then they don't qualify. If there is work available, but they can't work, uh, then they do qualify. And so um, that's really kind of the kicker in this. Right. So that was an important clarification that a lot of people were asking about the um, shelter in place using that term, and it appears that it will qualify. So getting back to whether employers are subject to the FFCRA, this emergency paid sick leave and the expanded FMLA, we still get a lot of questions about calculating the number of employees. So first question, do we look to the average number of employees in the prior year Right. So with 500 being the threshold, we we get a question of how do you count that? Do you look at um, prior year count or what? Something that was very interesting that came out of the rules, it says that you look at the employee count on the day at the time when the employee requests leave. You may not qualify today, and then if you terminate some employees, you may qualify in the future. So it's it's really a moving target, and you have to look at it based on the day that the employee requests leave. Super interesting, I thought. Yeah, it's very different from how uh, lots of other counts have worked in the past. Usually you do have a snapshot of the past year, or if you have a certain number in the prior year or this year. So this is a different way of looking at it. Um, I think partly what they're doing here is trying to provide an incentive to employers not to reduce employee count. So um, obviously employers want to get over that 500 employee threshold in order to not be subject to these two provisions. And if they do reduce their employee count, then they may become subject to it. So I think that's possibly, I think the reasoning is, I'm guessing at this point, but the reasoning may be to provide an incentive for employees not to drop, employers not to drop their employees. Right. Great point. So natural add-on question to that, who is included in that count? 
the rules said that the uh, employer should include full-time and part-time employees, employees on leave, temporary employees who are jointly employed by the employer and another employer, and day laborers supplied by a temp agency. That last part, I think, is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But not included in the count are independent contractors. And then they decided to throw a wrinkle in here. They said also furloughed employees. Um, That threw us because we think of furloughed employees as being mandated leave. So we would have put them in the leave bucket. But the DOL puts them in a different bucket. And they, they are treating them in this context more like a terminated employee. It's possibly because of the indefinite time in which some of these employees are put on furlough and, and knowing that it's going to be more than a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You, you do sometimes see government agencies want to ter- treat them more like a termination rather than just a leave. Um, but that's that's the case. And so if you have furloughed employees, you do not include them in the count. And again, this could be a reason why um, they are wanting in, in, uh, employers to um, maintain some of these employees in the workforce, again, to not drop the numbers down. Right. So um, do you think we'll have any further clarification from D.C. on this particular issue? It has been frustrating because there's not a federal definition of furlough. Right. Yeah, we we reached out to a couple of our industry um, groups that are in D.C. and asked them, when you said, when you're in communication with the DOL, would you please pose this question to them, ask for clarification? And so I know they're drafting up questions right now. They are in constant communication, so we hope that they'll respond. Sometimes they, the government decides not to respond and wants to keep it a bit unclear. Right. Um, but we hope in this case that they'll provide some kind of bright line that says if you put somebody on leave, a furlough for more than two weeks, it's considered termination, something like that. Um, we, we, we're hoping for more guidance. Right. So we'll keep tabs on that one. Uh, what about other guidance on the 500 count? Um, we have this... Lots of questions coming in about controlled groups, and we know the FMLA test for integrated employer status comes into play here. Expound on that a little. Yes, and they did clarify in one of their FAQs that it is the FMLA test that will be used to determine whether you have separate companies that will be combined to be a single employer for that 500 employee threshold in the aggregate. Um, And so there's also a joint employer test today. We're going to just focus briefly on the integrated employer test because that's the one that's generally most relevant And it looks at whether there's enough commonality in the operations in general, and I'll go through it quickly, um, that two two separate companies could be considered a single employer. So there are four different factors, and I can tell you generally what the courts have relied on to um, the the types of facts that the courts have relied on to determine whether there is two companies meet these criteria. The first one's common management, and under this one, the courts typically look for overlap of management functions. So it could be Um, It could be a CEO that's overseeing two different companies, also an overlap of human resource functions. So just merely combining them under a health plan, for example, wouldn't do it. You really are looking for some type of of management overlap. Hmm. The second would be between or interrelation between operations. And in this, they would look at, are they sharing an office? Uh, Do they have common record keeping? Are they sharing bank accounts or shared equipment or a common email system. These are types of things in the operational context that could look towards a single employer. Is the third one a centralized control of labor relations? Is there a shared employee handbook, for example? Are there policies that are consistent in terms of hiring, firing? Is there employee training that is is provided for both um, companies? Do they share development of personnel procedures? So these are the types of things that the courts would look to. 
And then the fourth one is actually the degree of common ownership. And, and interestingly, this is the least um, this is this is the least important factor mm-hmm. when they're evaluating this. It's usually the one we go to in other contexts. Yeah. But in this in this instance, they're really looking for more. It is a challenge because under so many other laws, it really is the determining factor. When you're talking about ACA employer mandate, when you're talking about non-discrimination, you usually are looking at who owns these companies and is there sufficient common control. In this case, that kind of goes to the bottom. Instead, you're looking at this uh, centralized operation, common management type of analysis. Right. And, and I will say, of course, in any of these factor, these tests where it is a bit gray and you're having to try to, to determine whether you meet that threshold or not, employers may be trying to get over that 500 employee count. But remember that if you do, you may not be eligible for those SBA loans that are under 500 employees. So there could be things, uh, there could be other reasons why you want to be careful about um, exp- going beyond that 500 employee count. Right. So additional legwork for employers uh, to go through that analysis uh, to determine if FFCRA applies. One of the questions we hear is uh, about companies that are over 500 employees. Maybe they go through this analysis and realize that, but they still want to take advantage of the associated tax credit uh, under either the expanded FMLA leave or the emergency paid sick leave. Yeah. Can an employer that's over 500 be more generous, provide that leave, and then on the backside get a tax cr- credit for it. Well, they can be more generous. It, <laughs> right. It doesn't look like they're going to get uh, they're going to get any uh, reimbursement for that. So under the guidance, the tax credits are available for the defined terms of qualified sick leave wages or qualified family we- leave wages, and those are both defined in such a way that the wages are tied back to the amounts paid under these two programs by the employer. Since the over 500 employee employer is not paying for benefits under these two programs, they won't have any qualified sick leave wages or qualified family leave wages. So they won't get reimbursement if they're more generous. Right. Okay. On the other side, we hear from employers with fewer than 50 employees wanting to know if they are automatically exempt from this. Is that true? Well, actually, the rule did provide some explanation on this, which was really kind of helpful or very helpful, I should say. Um, And they outlined how a small employer would be exempt from the requirement. And they said, number one, when such a leave would cause the small employer's expense to exceed available business revenue and cause them to cease operations. Obviously, it's better for the employee to stay on than to, to have the employer go out of business. Number two, the absence of the employee requesting such leave would pose such a substantial risk to the operational capacity because of the employer, because of their specialized skill, knowledge of the business or responsibility. So allowing that individual to go out on leave is really going to impact that small business. Mm -hmm. Number three, the small employer can't find enough workers to replace the individual who wants to go out because of their unique skills, for example. They did clarify that if the employer can document the facts and circumstances that would support one of these three reasons, then they may deny paid sick leave or expanded family leave Um, only for those employees whose absence would otherwise impact the employer for one of those reasons. So the DOL said, don't send this documentation in, do document the facts and circumstances, keep them in your records, don't send them in, and then it does become automatic after that. Great. Okay, so good clarifications there on the under 50 group. Um, That brings us to the idea of furloughs. Uh, We have been getting a ton of questions on the availability of unemployment and furloughs. Unemployment usually lives on the periphery of what we're discussing with compliance and benefits. But as part of the conversations that are happening right now, employers are interested in what will happen to employees if they are furloughed or laid off. 
speak to that a little bit. Right. And the frustration with all of this is that there's not a precise legal definition for furlough. So um, with unemployment, you think of somebody being terminated. But with furloughs, we think of them being on leave. Now the DOL has spoken and has given us a bit of a twist on that as well. Mm -hmm. But just to think of unemployment insurance, a little bit of background. It is a joint state-federal program. And although the federal law establishes the minimum guidelines, each state operates their own system. So each state identifies eligibility criteria for their own state's unemployment insurance. In most states, a temporary layoff or a furlough should generally um, result in an employee being eligible for unemployment. I will say the states have been very good about posting things on their websites um, and, and either identifying someone who's had a reduction in hours as being eligible or actually using the term furlough. So check your state websites for this information Um, I would say that they they do seem to be uh, pretty generous. Some examples. The New York Department of Labor has waived the waiting period of seven days for benefits related to the coronavirus pandemic. So in some states, they have a seven-day waiting period before unemployment benefits will kick in. New York stepped up to the plate. They said, we're going to waive that seven days and allow it to kick in immediately. In California, their guidance highlighted that employees can receive benefits during periods of furloughs or reduced hours, so they actually use that term on their website. Um, Washington, D.C.'s guidance said um, they have a fact sheet, and it explains how employees can receive partial or complete benefits in cases of reduced hours for government shutdowns. So, again, go to your relevant state's website. There is a lot of good information out there. Yeah, the states have been very active in putting information out on this uh, from my experience as well. Wasn't there something in the CARES Act about unemployment insurance, though, Suzanne? Yes, and so this will actually uh, likely result in states being more generous. But last Friday on March 27th, the CARES Act was passed. I'm sure all of you have been inundated with enormous amount of emails on this. Mm -hmm. But there's one portion of it that's really relevant in this context. And there was a massive unemployment expansion called the Relief for Workers Affected by Coronavirus Coronavirus Act. And I'm just going to walk you very briefly through the UI benefits that were established because it helps give you an indication of how states may respond. So under Section 2104, individuals who are otherwise eligible for unemployment benefits will receive an additional $600 per week. So that's that's in addition to whatever they're receiving already under the state unemployment compensation. And then under Section 2105, if a state waives its standard one-week waiting period, similar to what New York did, Um, then the federal government will kick in the cost for that week of benefits. And so that certainly provides an incentive for for other states to go along. Hmm. Section 2107, if individuals remain unemployed after their state employment benefits are up, the federal government will then pay for an additional 13 weeks of unemployment benefits. So it'll take it to 39 weeks instead of your standard 26 weeks of um, maximum benefits under most states' laws. And, and that will be paid out at $600 per week. Under Sections 2108 and 2109, um, the Act will provide funding to states that currently have or choose to implement a short-time compensation program for employers that reduce their employees' hours in lieu of a layoff. And so obviously this is to provide an incentive for employers to re- keep their employees on. Um, so that's a, a nice benefit that will go out to states to encourage them to set up these programs. And then finally, Section 2102 is um, creating a federally funded um, unemployment program for those people who would not otherwise qualify under their state benefits. So it's people who are like self-employed, for example, or independent contractors. So as you can see, these these programs under the CARES Act are there to help support states and individuals and employers to continue benefits and, and pick up 
um, where, uh, you know, these they're all having difficulty under the pandemic. Yeah, so CARES Act really feels like the federal government is trying to step in and encourage and help states be able to fund unemployment, help these people who are being furloughed or laid off to have some level of income through the unemployment system. Um, with respect to furloughs, losing hours, the unemployment helps with the salary a little bit, but what about on the benefits side? Is uh, group health insurance coverage impacted by a furlough or layoff? Well, let me answer this in two ways. So one is, is relates to those employees and I, who may not be referred to as a furlough, but who are unable to work because of one of those six identifying reasons under the uh, Emergency Paid Sick Leave Act or because of school closure also under FMLA, expanded FMLA. If you are able to receive benefits because you're unable to work due to one of those reasons and you have work available, you can receive benefits then what the DOL reg said is that the, the employer must treat it like FMLA and continue your benefits. It's a mandate. The employer has to continue benefits under this type of a leave program, similar to what they do under the FMLA. Um, the second set of employees that I'll address are those on furlough who don't qualify for one of the benefits because there's no work available for them otherwise. And in that case, it's going to be treated probably more like um, a termination but it could be under their plan docs, you could treat it as a leave, a different type of leave. And so what we would say in this instance is to look at your plan document terms, see how eligibility is defined. If it's defined by someone who is working a certain number of hours or under a protected leave, you may need to expand the terms of that and, and, and add an amendment. But before you do so, make sure that you check in with your carriers if you're fully insured, your stop-loss carriers if, if you are self-funded and make sure that they agree with that as well. What we found is most carriers seem to be expanding coverage for those employees. So just make sure that not only your carriers line up, but also that your, your documents line up as well. Right, so important to keep things consistent there across the board. Okay, so outside of what we've discussed, is there anything else from a legislative or regulatory perspective uh, that may affect business here? Yeah, and this is really kind of a plug to our to our property and casualty group. Um, but I do want to say, because this is really an evolving issue that really could impact businesses, and that relates to business interruption insurance. So most businesses carry commercial property insurance, and many include a business interruption insurance coverage. The issue with this type of coverage is that property insurance typically requires a direct physical damage to the property. And that's where there's question is on whether this coverage will, will do that. First, I want to say this is not a statement as to whether your coverage will do will will cover your business interruption as it relates to COVID-19 or not. Every policy is drafted differently. Check your terms, work with your broker, just giving you the lay of the land in terms of what's happening from a state and federal activity level with the understanding that some coverage may not go that far. At the federal level, there hasn't been any bills yet um, that have been proposed, but Maxine Waters sent a memorandum around to House Democrats proposing a reinsurance program similar to what happened with Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, TRIA, for pandemics. And what it does is it really caps the total loss for insurers. So it, it helps really insurers pay those claims, but then caps what their losses will be in order to retain the viability of our, of our insurance market. So then we look to the states. The state is where there's been a lot of activity. I shouldn't say a lot. There's been some real interesting activity. Four states, Ohio, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and New York, have introduced bills that effectively rewrite the insurance contract. So it requires business interruption carriers to construe their policies to include coverage for business interruption related to COVID-19. So it would really force insurers to pay for these losses, even if there is no direct physical loss or damage, which is typically required under a property 
um, policy. Right. You're talking about usually like a flood or a fire, something where there's actual physical damage to the property, right? Exactly. Yes. That would impact their business. Um, And so one state even went so far as to say that this coverage is required regardless of the policy terms and even in the presence of a policy's unambiguous virus exclusion. Wow. So truly rewriting coverage that's already in place. Right. It's really, um, it's fascinating that they're, that they're attempting to do this. The bills do have some limitation. At least three of the states apply the policy, these provisions related to the policies to insurance with 100 or fewer employees. Massachusetts takes it up to 150 employees. Um, but just know they also limit it in terms of time. So they would only require this coverage for a limited period of time. So expect to see legal challenges if these bills are passed, and you can understand why. Right. Yeah, um, if I'm a carrier and essentially the state law is telling me that I have to pick up something, and as you said, even if I have a t- policy term that says unambiguously I'm excluding virus, right. uh, viruses. So, yeah, I would imagine some lawsuits. So we'll, we'll continue to monitor these developments. We do put information up on our Insights page. They, this would c- fall under the Property and Casualty section of the Insights page. We, go, we also have some state action, state activity information related to this, as well as premium grace periods um, to follow. So look to that Insights page for ongoing developments, and we will continue to monitor this as this evolves. Thank you for expounding on that. Thank you for your insights on the FFCRA and furloughs. We could go on for hours. We're going to wrap up now. Tune into our webinars and check out our latest insights page at nfp.com for other COVID-related information. Uh, As we like to say, though, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.